0: The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning and Happy New Year. So glad that you have joined us in worship this morning at Harvest. My name is Kenan Vaughn. got the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harvest and what a privilege it is. And, uh, and this morning is a real treat. If you're visiting, then uh, you're in for something extra special. And not only do we have our friends, the Avilas here, and it's, um, that's really neat. Anybody in our church family, the Avilas are very special to us. Um, Felipe first and then Carlos have come, spent a year going through the downline Bible training. And, and as they've done that, they've served very faithfully in, uh, with their musical gifts as a part of our praise band. And so we're hoping that Mateo and Pablo will follow suit. I saw there's two more up there. We're counting on you guys. But uh, these guys are such servants, and it's such a joy to partner with them in Columbia and what God's doing in their ministry, and, and just to be able to be with you guys this morning is a real treat. Let's thank God for their service once more. Well, I want to just very briefly introduce to you our speaker this morning, uh, who is Ronnie Stevens. And if you don't know Ronnie, um, he's going on 40 years. I guess this will be 39 years married to Jane uh, this March, which is um, just a beautiful thing. He's got three children, uh, all of whom I know. Katie, uh, who's married to my friend David, and then Seth and uh, Ruth. All of his children are such a delight. He's got four grandsons, uh, all from Katie and David's marriage. And so uh, just really blessed, fruitful, multiplying there. And then ministry-wise, Ronnie is, uh, is an incredible preacher of God's word. He pastored at First Van uh, in the 90s and then has been at Danube International in Budapest for nearly the last 15 years. And, uh, and we're, really, we're really blessed that he's here this morning. I'll, I'll just say this, and he asked me not to overblow this, so I'm gonna try to honor that. But I, um, I think there's really three men uh, who have just, their preaching of the word has marked my life in, in just an indelible and indescribable way. And uh, one of them is with the Lord, and that's Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Two of them are still with us, and and one of those two is Ronnie Stevens. So for me this morning, I get to sit at the feet literally of one of my heroes, and I've often said I'd go to the ends of the earth to hear this man preach a sermon. And God, in his mercy, has brought Ronnie from the ends of the earth to us this morning so that we can all hear him preach the word. And so, Ronnie, I'm going to pray for you, and if you would come up, we are so blessed that you're here. Father, thank you so much for your servant, Ronnie Stevens, and... uh, Even more than preacher, that's what he's been. It's your servant. It's his faithfulness and obedience. It's his desire to know your will for he and his family and his willingness to follow that is what I probably most greatly and and deeply respect about him. It's the example he sets that I desperately want to follow in the footsteps of. Thank you for the gifting, the anointing you've given him. I pray that as he speaks, Uh, In the mysterious power of your Holy Spirit, he would just decrease, and you, Jesus, you would increase in our presence right now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
1: So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the precious name of God's only Son, Earth's only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's such a treat for me to worship him with you on the first Sunday of the new year. If you'll turn to 1 John 3, I'm commending the first three verses to you as as a text fit for a new year. In those three verses, we're told about something that God has done in the past. We're told about the abiding reality in the present because God had done that thing. And then we're told about uh, really an unimaginable prospect in the future. So that's what we do during the season of New Year's, we, we look back and we assess where we are and we think about where we're going to be and, and where we hope to be. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, who formerly was not only a slave trader but for a brief time was actually the slave of a slave woman, he said, I'm not what I ought to be, uh, I'm not what I hope to be, um, and I'm not what I'm going to be. by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. That's the kind of reality that 1 John 3, 1 through 3, really all of 1 John tells us about. I don't know what your precise traditions are, but uh, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read from 1 John 3, 1 through 3, our text for the new year. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. even as he is pure. Father, we thank you for telling us the truth about who we are, what we're going to be, the way that you made it so through your love, and the way that we can make it more so in our present experience. May we gain all that you've given us. May we appropriate it. May we see what you're showing us least partially, because we've come here today to study your word, to take the bread and the cup, to glorify you through your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I realize that many of you, probably the majority of you, were not alive in the 70s. Some of us were not only alive during the 70s, we can actually remember the 70s. And We used to sing a song. I became a Christian in 1971, and in the 70s, we used to sing a song. We would use the King James Version from this text. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. We used to sing that song in the rounds. How many of you have ever sung that song before? Isn't that amazing that we're still alive? It's great. (laughs) Even in a new year, it's a fantastic song. This English Standard Version says, See. I like the King James a little bit better. It's stronger, even though it's a word that we only really find these days in the older versions of the Bible. Behold. And John is saying, Come look at this. Pay attention to this. There's something that I want you to see. And the younger we are, the more trivial are the things that we point out, maybe the more obvious things. Little children may say, look, a truck. And we're, we're happy to um, have those exchanges with, with the little children. When, when we get a little bit older, it's a little bit harder to impress us, especially if we've been a lot of places and we've, we've seen a, a lot of things. I want you to think for a moment about the man who says to us, hey, come look at this. Behold, see this thing. There was no one living on the planet who had beheld what John the Apostle had beheld, who'd had the kind of experiences that he had had by this time. Most of you will know that there were concentric circles of intimacy around the Lord Jesus Christ. There were the multitude, those who just kind of hung around on the periphery to see What might happen. Maybe they'd see something special. Maybe they'd hear a miracle. Maybe they'd get some benefit. Maybe they'd be fed among the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish. They were curious, or at least they were willing to be a part of the multitude. There may be some of you um, like that in that category here this this morning. It's possible to, to come closer on the, in that space of time between the Lord's ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers gathered in a room in Acts 1, waiting on the promise that Jesus had made of the coming of the God the third person. There was a, a group, we read about this in uh, Matthew, Luke 9, Luke 10, Luke 10. Uh, there were a group called the Seventy which were sent out for him. And we're off familiar with the twelve who lived with him for three years during the days of his earthly ministry. And many of you will remember that there were also the three among the twelve, Peter, James, and John, who had privileges and who witnessed episodes which were not afforded to the other nine. Maybe the most dramatic was that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration Matthew 17, only the three went up. Only the three beheld uh, the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus as his face shone like the strength. The other nine were, were, were down the hill. Um, only the three were in the little girl's death chamber. Only the three heard the Lord say in Aramaic to Jairus' daughter, Talitha cum, little girl, I say to you, you can get up now. Even though you were dead, you can get up now. What a memory that must have been. Only the three penetrated the further gloom of Gethsemane while the others slept at at some distance. Now, even among the three, there was the one. Only John was present at the cross. John among the twelve got to the tomb first. He never names himself in his gospel. He speaks of himself in the third person. Sometimes he calls himself the other disciple. Sometimes he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He called himself the one who put his head on, on Jesus' breast. And he, even among the three, was special. He experienced things, even that the other two did not experience. When you read John 1.18... Well, even when you read the beginning of this little epistle of 1 John, he he talks about the things we have heard, the things we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. That's the way he begins the epistle. In his gospel in chapter 1, he says, We beheld his glory. And basically, it's a reference to Exodus 33, where where Moses cries out and says, Show me your glory. And God says, you know, I'm going to show you something, but I'm not going to show you everything. I'm going to show you my backside. I'm going to show you the trailing afterglow. But you can't see my face and, and... and live, and yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.6 that we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And on the Mount of Transfiguration at a minimum and perhaps at other times, John the Apostle saw what Moses wanted to see. He saw the glory of God. We beheld his glory. We beheld that. And now he's saying to us, I want you to behold something. There's something I want you to see. And for a man who had that kind of experience in what he had seen to be excited about showing something to us, it must be something really, really important. And what he says is, I want to show you something about God's love. I want to show you what kind of love God loves us with. Behold, what manner of love the Father... Has given unto us. You know, not all love is the same. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on four Greek words for love. Two of them are found in the New Testament, one of them is found in the Greek Old Testament. And when John begins to recount the the narrative which leads to the raising of Lazarus, he begins by talking about love. The sisters send a message to Jesus, who's up in Galilee, they're down in Judea at Bethany, and he says, Lord, the, love, the one whom you love is sick. Now, let me just tell you that Greek is rarely critical, and I'm glad because I really don't know any Greek. But Greek is critical at the beginning of John 11 because what John writes is, that, that or what he tells us is that the, the sisters wrote, Lord, the one whom you phileo, the one whom you love, With human love, he's sick. So we expect you to do what human love would do, what our kind of love would do. And in verse 5, John says, you know what? Jesus really did love Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he doesn't use phileo. He uses agapao, the word for divine love. Human love would have run down there and kept tried to keep Lazarus from dying. Divine love allowed him to die. Let me just tell you that um, I was living in Russia during the season that my father was dying. And I'm so glad that I got there before my father died. I'm so glad I was with him when he died, August fifteenth, nineteen 1994. And I was living in Budapest when my mother died, and I'm so glad... I got there. January 4th, 2013, tomorrow's the anniversary, 2014. I'm so glad I got there before she died. And you know what? I, uh, we all need people who, who want to get there and, and do something for us before we die. We need friends and family like that. But you know what? I need another kind of friend. I need a friend who can do something for me after I die. And that's the kind of friend that Jesus is. And that's the kind of friendship he showed toward Lazarus. He did let him die, but then he raised him from the dead. And if you're a Christian and you're not alive when Jesus comes, he's going to let you die, but then he's going to raise you from the dead. And that's the best kind of love. And that's the love that John is telling us about, the kind of love he's teaching us about in this chapter. Before I leave the topic of John's perspective on love, in a few minutes we're going to Remember the Lord's death in the way that he prescribed. And um, John doesn't tell us anything about the Lord's Supper. It's amazing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about the Lord's Supper, but they don't tell us about the Lord's Sermon in the upper room. John doesn't give us any details of the Supper. He gives us the details of the Sermon. And what he says in two places about love, or what he reports that the Lord Jesus said, I think, you know, you, you hate to rate and use superlatives because all of God's word is true and all of God's word is vitally important. But I would rank this at the very top of the first things that Christians need to know and understand. And it's about the same topic, and John is the only one who tells us this. So I just give it to you. John 15, 9. The resting party is already strapped on, their, uh, strapped on their gear, and they're coming after him. And this is what Jesus is saying. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Did you get that? John 15, 9. That's for you. If you're a believer, that's for you. Jesus loves you, Christian. Like his father loves him. Think about that. And then before he concludes the report of the upper room discourse in the high priestly prayer, chapter 17, verse 23, listen to what he says as he prays to his father. You loved them even as you love me. Now, so, let's get this straight. Jesus loves us as believers like his Father loves him. The Father loves us like he loves the Son. Now, let me ask you a question if you're a Christian. What else do you need if you know you have that? What else do you have to have? Do you have to have health? Do you have to have a long life? you have to have plenty of money? you have to have kids who do exactly what you want them to do? Listen, we all, we all want those things. I just name things that I want. But do you have to have those things? If you know that Jesus loves you like his father loves him, if you know that his father loves you like he loves Jesus, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. But that's the point he makes in John 15 and John 17. The point he's making here is that God loves you so much that he adopted you. And he didn't just adopt you in time, but he's provided a way So that he can be with you 24-7. Now let me ask you a question. Who do you want to be with 24-7? Let me answer that question for you. Nobody. (laughs) One of the things that shocks women when they get married is the man's need for solitude. The man's need to go out in the woods or the man's need to go out with his buddies. I mean, men are just messed up in that way. But the reality is none of us want to be, you know, know, one thing you'll find with a young mother is she's discovered how much she can love and she never dreamed how much she could love and she's also never dreamed how much she needs a break. Just a little time away from those precious ones. One of my best friends was walking down the street in Munich near a place called Isartorplatz. This is about 1990, and I saw him come around the corner. You know what I did? I ducked in a hat store. You know why? Because it was my day off. And you know what? I love that guy. He called me just the other day. We're still in touch. I didn't want to see anybody, I wanted to be alone that day. I wanted to walk around Munich alone on my day off. God is not like that. God has sent his son to die so that you could abide in his presence forever. God has adopted you for the purpose of intimate fellowship. It's unimaginable. Now, an adoption is a legal thing, and your adoption is also a legal thing. In a legal adoption, we give a child our name. Some of you are adopted. Some of you are adoptive parents. And my hat is off to you. There's no gutsier thing than any, that anyone can do than adoption. I, on a very few occasions, uh, have been able to spend a little time ministering in the East, And I'll tell you, I never go in there... without an exit strategy. I never go in there without figuring out how I'm going to get out. And there are, there are heroic missionaries who, just, who live in there all the time. They're not like me, who just dart in and dart out as, as soon as we can. But even they have exit strategies. And when you adopt someone, there's no exit strategy. It's irrevocable. That's it. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, heroic thing and I salute you for it. But you know, you can do this legal thing and you can give a child your name, but you can't give a child your nature. I got a pal named Brett Hilliard. He used to live in Memphis. Some of you know him. And Brett's taken a church in Hong Kong of about 400, has taken it to about 4,000. God through Brett. its really, really blessed his ministry. And Brett and his wife, Shannon, they're like movie stars, and they put about three pictures up there a day on Facebook. It's, it's, it's amazing. And if I looked like them, I would do that too. I go, to face, I go to Facebook to make sure people haven't tagged me. I get up in the middle of the night to take, take photos down. And I, somebody told me about two weeks ago, you know you can put a filter on there and nobody can do that. I said, really? And I mean, it's taken the terror out of my life. You know, I I can sleep through the night, but Brett and Shannon are always posting these beautiful pictures of themselves and and their kids, but the kids are adopted. Now, it's a wonderful providence that the daughter, Abby, actually looks like Shannon. And I'll tell you what, everybody would like to look like Shannon. And the son, Hudson, named after Hudson Taylor, actually looks like Brett. It's amazing, but they're in China. And they've adopted two Chinese children. And so you hear these, you see these family portraits. All four of the children are adopted. But two of the children look like the mom and dad, and two of the children are clearly Chinese. Those Chinese children are heirs. Those Chinese children are named Hilliard. They're just as much of a family as as the other two children but they don't look like them. We can confer our names on adopted children. We cannot confer our nature, but God can. God can. Isn't that unbelievable? Salvation is a complex of diverse realities. There's something legal involved called justification where even though we're unrighteous God declares, even though we're unjust, God declares us to be just. And through faith in his Son, he pounds the gavel as a judge. And we're just. We have imputed righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. But God also imparts his nature to us through the miracle of regeneration. Where God the Father shares his nature with us. John says, we are children of God, and such we are. Isn't it amazing to be told that this is who we are? We are children of God. And then John says, you know, it doesn't quite, we don't quite know exactly how that's going to work out. It hasn't yet appeared that a, a fallen human creature has manifested the fullness of Christ's likeness. We've only seen it in Christ himself. He says in verse 2, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's the future. Theologians study what the Bible says about the future. They call it eschatology. Someone has said that one-fourth of all Scripture was prophetic at the time it was written. That's an amazingly high percentage. And there there, there are varied aspects of these future realities, and Christians argue over the details of them. Some interpret in a more literal way. Some interpret in a less literal way. And there's, blessedly, things that we all agree on. One day, Christian You're gonna see your Savior step out of the sky. Now, that may be amazing, but we can imagine it, can't we? I can imagine it. You're gonna see Him attended by thousands of angels. That's rather, that may strain us a little bit, but I can imagine it. We're gonna hear the blast of a trumpet that every ear on earth will hear. I can imagine that. Every eye will see him. I don't know how he's going to arrange the hemispheres, so that's possible. But trust me, he'll do it. Trust him. He'll do it. Every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow. I can imagine that. But you know, there's something else that I can't imagine. It's found in 1 Corinthians 1552. "We shall be changed. It's found in 1 John 3, 2. We shall be like him. Sky full of angels, no problem. Jesus appearing in the air, no problem. Ronnie Collier Stevens being like the Lord Jesus Christ, impossible to imagine. Unimaginable. And yet the future reality is ours. Not by merit, but by grace. Not by human effort, but by the shed blood of the Son of the living God. We shall see Him and we shall be like Him. Now, eternal life begins now. Sanctification begins now. The process begins now. And the amazing thing about this text is that John actually tells us something to do. He says that everyone who hopes in the appearance of Jesus purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. Not purifies himself in legalistic ways of rules and do's and don'ts, but who becomes righteous like Christ is righteous, pure like Christ is righteous. You know, it's hard for us not to think of uh, purity as anything but the absence of something else. Chesterton wrote this when he was 31 years old. White is positive and essential. White is a color. It is not the mere absence of color. It is a shining and affirming, affirmative thing as fierce as red and definite as black. When your pencil grows red hot, it draws roses. When your pencil grows white hot, it draws stars. Virtue is not the absence of vices or the avoidance of moral dangers. Virtue is a vivid and separate thing. Mercy does not mean not being cruel. It means a plain and positive thing like the sun. Chastity does not mean abstention from sexual wrong. It means something flaming like Joan of Arc. God paints in garish colors. Excuse me. God paints in varied colors, but he never paints so gorgeously. I had almost said so gaudily as when he paints in white. Purity is a positive thing, not just a negative thing. Purity is a powerful thing. It's not just a flaccid thing. This is the prospect before us that we would be pure like he is pure. And then he gives us something to do. He says, you know what? If you'll focus on his coming, if you'll focus on this reality, you will find that you are actually becoming pure. You know, I need a lot of help when it comes to being pure. Um, There are a lot of men who struggle with purity. I suppose there are women who struggle with purity. And one thing we need is we need accountability. We find that we can't do it by ourselves. If we're struggling, if we're weak, we need to have somebody to talk to and say, well, this is what happened when I was tempted. I told you I was going to tell you everything. I'm telling you everything in this area. I'll tell you, Kenan will tell you, pastors will tell you that um, this is a form of accountability. I'm a pretty weak, lousy Christian, but I want you to know something. I'd be much sloppier if I didn't have to stand up in front of people and declare the, the word of God Sunday after Sunday. I would. I'd be much more lax because it's got to be real. It, ha- it has to be real. We need accountability. And you know what? I, I've- I have little, little things that I do that-, that help me, and I need lots of help. And I'm not saying that I do these things every time I'm tempted. I'm not even saying I ever do these things. I'm just saying this is a good thing to do. Here's one thing that's helped me in the past. You remember the first time Jesus gave us a sign. You remember where it was. It was in the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. We might even say it's the first gift he gave. He gave a gift of wine. Have you ever thought about the last gift Jesus was given? It was a gift of wine. Remember? You remember? While he was on the cross. Now, what kind of wine did he give? Well, he gave the best wine anybody had ever tasted. And what kind of gift was he given? Well, it was wine that tasted like vinegar. In fact, it was vinegar. It was the worst kind of wine anybody could ever try to drink. And you know, sometimes when I'm tempted, and it's not necessarily with the eyes, it can be, a temptation can be an attitude. A temptation can be a word. I very often sin with my tongue. It can be a relational impurity. It can be something that I know is not what he died to give me. And when I struggle with that, sometimes I think, is this the kind of wine I want to offer him who gave the best wine to me? Do I really want to serve up to him the vinegar of my lust? The vinegar of my lack of forgiveness? The vinegar of this habit that I seem to fondle and never let go of? Is that what I want to give to him? I'll tell you something else I do. This is with the lust of the eyes. And I don't do it often enough. Sometimes when I'm tempted with my eyes, I turn aside and I begin to pray. And I say, Lord, I thank you for creating that beauty. You must be a beautiful God if you can create beauty like that. But Lord, I know you didn't create that beauty for me to look upon. Maybe somebody else to look upon, but not for me to look upon. And Lord, I thank you that beautiful as that image is, as that vision is, as that person is, I thank you that you created a a larger beauty, a much grander beauty, that you did create me to look upon. And Lord, I want to look upon that beauty. And you know what? I want to show others that beauty. And would you prepare me by having me to turn aside from this beauty you haven't given to me? to gaze upon the beauty you have given to me, that I might invite others to gaze upon it. You know, that helps me when I do that. I don't do it often enough. But when I do it, it helps me. Now, those are just my little fancies. God, in his word, actually gives us another way to purify ourselves. As a matter of fact, he does in this very passage. In verse 3, he says, If you will think about the fact That Jesus may come in 2016. If you will think about the fact that Jesus may come before you walk through that door. It will help you to be pure. Funny little things happen to me if I go out without washing my hair or shaving. I usually meet not one or two people, but four or five people that I know. If I feel lonely at a restaurant, all I have to do is order dessert because while I'm there ordering dessert, three or four people that I know will walk up and see me there eating dessert. And that's kind of embarrassing for a guy that looks like me to eat dessert in public. Uh, And it's embarrassing to go out, you know, without washing your hair or whatever. And people, it's embarrassing. Hey, do you ever think about what you might be doing when Jesus comes? Maybe you ought to think about that. Maybe you ought to ask yourself the question, do I want to be doing this right now when I meet my Savior face to face? Is this really what I want to be about when I meet him? You know what? If we focused on that, it might help us to be pure. I think that it would. And that's exactly what John is telling us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That you and I would be children of God. This is one reason we're not as popular as we would like to be in the world. The world doesn't know us as we want to be known. Because it doesn't know Him. We're going to see Him. We're going to see Him as He is. John described him as he is in Revelation 1. Behold, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw a man with a robe reaching to his feet, girded about his breast with a golden girdle. I saw stars in that man. I saw the sun in that man. He told me not to be afraid. He told me he held the keys of death and of hell. He's my older brother. I'm in his family. He's coming to get me and take me to himself. And because I know that, I can be pure. I can be pure. Heavenly Father, thank you for telling us what you've done for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for telling us who we are right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for telling us what we're going to be one day. And Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us how we can advance toward that great reality of Christ-likeness beginning now even before he comes. By focusing on the sure and certain reality of our future, of his future coming. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for letting us live until 2016. How you have blessed us. How much you've given us. May we render to you a stewardship proportionate to privilege. And may one of those things that we grow in, be purity until we see our, fa- our Savior face-to-face and he grants us definitive, imparted, actual righteousness, like unto his very own. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.